I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today, we're going to talk about cough, but we're going to limit ourselves to subacute and chronic cough that's lasted over three weeks. We've already done an acute cough. In episode five, it was, we did cough and fever and addressed acute infection. So today, we're going to take the other side of cough. Great. Adam, you are the expert of the day. I believe you have a case for me. I do, Scott. And actually, we can we can totally ignore that, you know, patient privacy shtick we give up front, because this case I drew directly from a published case report. Well, okay, I think that's really unfair. <laughs> um, and it really scares me. Um, it's interesting. It does create a certain bias, just like when you get a case that's referred to you from a malpractice attorney, because right. you know that there's something odd or bad about it. I often think about morning report, you know, like it's never post-nasal drip, but morning report. Right. So, okay. With that bias, go ahead. Tell me. <laughs> I know I'm going to get dripped up, but go ahead. Okay. So this is a 35-year-old man, and he came in with a cough, which has pretty much been bothering him for about seven years, okay? Um, It's a dry cough, really no associated symptoms. And as you can imagine in today's world, he's had multiple evaluations over the year. He's actually had a bunch of chest x-rays. He had a chest CT, actually had bronchoscopy. And that's not the only endoscopy he had. He had kind of nasopharyngeal laryngoscopy, okay, seen in ENT. Um, He had allergy testing and also had an EGD at some point. Never found anything. He's on no medications. You know, this isn't like horrible, but it does kind of bug him, which is why he, you know, occasionally sort of dives into a bit of a workup. I think he said he's on no meds. Past medical history is pretty unremarkable. He had an appendectomy as a kid, and he had a tympanoplasty actually as a kid for cholesteatoma removal. And um, nothing much else to say. I'll I'll give you his exam. Um, On exam... Now I'll hold on the exam. I'll I'll let you ask questions. Well, geez, I mean, one would suspect if he had post nasal drip at this point, it would have somebody would have figured that out and tried him on treatment, and it shouldn't have persisted. And although reflux, you may not always see evidence of esophagitis on um, EGD. You would think if it was bad enough to create a cough that's lasted for seven years, you'd see some evidence of it. You know, asthma, you don't have any prior history of asthma. He could just have a cough from his asthma. It doesn't sound like he's had PFTs and a methacholine challenge, and it could certainly give rise to a dry cough. So I suppose that's on the list. Yeah. A lot of other more concerning things are less likely. It doesn't sound like bronchiectasis given the CT scan and the dry cough. Um, ABPA is a particular type of bronchiectasis that sometimes, sometimes escapes diagnosis, although usually they've had episodes of pneumonia and shifting infiltrates that would help with that diagnosis. CF, similarly, with no, nothing abnormal on the chest X-ray and CT scan would be unlikely. TB, with nothing on the chest X-ray and the CT scan, 
would be unlikely. Had no progression, right? Uh, this guy has sort of withstood the test of time that you'd say, you know, if you had tuberculosis for seven right. years, you'd hopefully right. know it. And, so, and the same thing is true with tumors, right? Yeah, so even totally. if they missed it on the CT scan and endos- or laryngoscopy, that seems unlikely. So, And even if it's a benign, you know, schwannoma or something, you expect that that's going to grow over time and you would see it on repeat imaging. Something. So, you know, you'd wonder about medications. Yeah. You'd still wonder about asthma. Yeah. Um, I'd wonder what his work is because exposures, you know, sometimes people just have maybe, you know, I don't know what sure. he does at work or at home or what his hobbies are, but this might be one of those times we'd want to know that. That's all I've got. I'd probably review those things with him, go over his exam carefully, make sure his cardiac and his pulmonary exams are going to be normal. I suspect that they will be or someone would have found out by now. Um, and then if I didn't get anything from his history, uh, of exposures, I'd probably next go to a uh, methicoline challenge test and see what I found. Great. That's interesting. Actually, when I read the case, I got to say, I was sort of thinking uh, very much along the lines you are. Um, and CF was an interesting thing to me as I, as I thought about it, because we, you know, we as internists, and certainly even more so, I think the pediatricians and the pulmonologists, right, see so much terrible, terrible cystic fibrosis. But it is true that there are some people who have very mild disease um, and present with, you know, weight loss later in life or gastrointestinal manifestations or mild pulmonary disease. So um, that crossed my mind too, as I read this case. Um, I think I'm going to actually hold on the exam until after the, until the next part of the podcast, if that's okay. Sure. I also want to know if he's clubbing when you examine him. Okay. But go ahead. Okay. Um, So let's go on to the five points, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, And because you did such a nice job sort of talking through the case, uh, a lot of this is going to just sort of flesh out some of the things you talked about. So point one is the big three, which everybody knows about, right? Chronic cough, you should think about what's called an upper airway cough syndrome, which is basically post-nasal drip, asthma, and reflux. So a quick note about all of these. First, all of these um, three may cause cough in the presence of their classic symptoms. And so that's not very hard to figure out, right? If someone comes in and they say, I'm coughing, but I also have a lot of heartburn and my cough is worse, you know, when my heart burns bad at night or my cough gets worse when I'm in an asthma flare, you know, that's easy, right? What's hard is when the cough presents as like the main symptom of one of these problems. So asthma. Um, So when asthma appears with cough alone, we call this, shockingly, cough variant asthma. Um, You should think about this, especially if the patient also has asthma, if the patient's really atopic, okay, if there's a family history of asthma, or if you said like, let me say that this person has wheezing at these times instead of what they actually have is cough. So like if it's seasonal, if it's post-infectious, if it's worse on exposure, maybe to cold, dry air, dusty places, certain fragrances, that would say, huh, you know, I bet this is asthma, even though the only thing the person's giving me is cough. Post-nasal drip, you know, there's this long, long uh, kind of differential diagnosis of all the things that can cause post-nasal drip. So, you know, there's allergic rhinitis, there's perennial non-allergic rhinitis, there's vasomotor rhinitis, there's acute nasopharyngitis. So all different things that you'd think about in the head and neck, which could cause post-nasal drip. Um, GERD can be really tough um, because it can be a cause with essentially nothing else and 
can actually have a fairly normal workup, right? Because you mentioned EGD, you know, you can people, you can have people who really don't have esophagitis because they can have kind of non-acid reflux and you don't see a whole lot even on things like pH testing. Right. I guess that's true. If you're refluxing up and it's not very acidic, all you're going to do is irritate your upper airway and cough. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so especially maybe if somebody was on a PPI. Right. <laughs> and when I've read in depth about this, it, it actually sounds like a lot of the really hard to diagnose kind of benign cough syndromes end up being reflux, um, where some reports are, you know, it took nascent fundoplication to actually get the patient's cough to go. Oh, my God. I think I put up with my cough. <laughs> maybe. Um, okay, my second key point is that post-infectious cough should probably be included with the with the big three, okay? Just because it's really common, it actually often, though, works through one of those three. So you can imagine that, you know, if you have an upper airway infection, you might end up with increased secretions, right? It gives you post-nasal drip and cough. It may give you airway sensitivity and inflammation, which would give you sort of an asthma-like cough. Post-infectious cough is really classic after things like mycoplasma infections, chlamydia pneumonia infections, bordetella, right? Um, whooping cough, which, um, you know, people have said that in Mandarin, and I don't even know this is actually true, that like what you call whooping cough is the 100-day cough, which is certainly, I think, true. Um, and then interestingly, you know, in the age of COVID, the third most commonly listed symptom of the quote-unquote long COVID is cough. So we may see this sure. a lot. It's kind of funny you say that about pertussis, because as you may remember, a couple of years ago, I had a cough and I thought it was my asthma acting yeah, up. Yeah. And then COVID came along and my daughter had a cough and I got her tested and she had pertussis. And I'm like, oh my God, I've had pertussis for two months and I've been coughing and thinking it was my asthma. <laughs> and you gave it to your child. And I gave it to her. And she was very mad at me because I had her <laughs> tested for COVID and she said it was all my fault. Oh, well. She was more upset about the nasopharyngeal swab than the... Um, than I have the never pertussis. heard the end of that. That's all I'm going to say. And I never will. Good. I'll bring it up the next time I'm with the two of you. Please. Third key point, ACE inhibitor cough. This is just to sort of say ACE inhibitor cough, it exists. It's a thing. And it's really common. It actually affects about 15% of people. Um, it's usually early in the use of the ACE inhibitor, but it can occur uh, really at any time. I mean, I think we've all seen patients who, you know, three years into the lisinopril all of a sudden develops a cough. Um, ACE inhibitor cough is definitely more common in women, uh, most common, more common in African Americans, more common in actually people of Asian descent as well. But you can see it in anybody. Cool. Your uh, fourth point. My fourth point is, is I'm not sure which is pathetic, saying that my third point is ACE inhibitor cough exists, or my fourth key point is. There's a really long differential right. for chronic cough. So you're going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, the big three, post-infectious cough, ACE inhibitor cough. But if those don't pan out, you got to really think. You mentioned a lot of these, right? So bronchiectasis, malignancy, um, even benign tumors um, of the, you know, airways and lungs, interstitial lung disease, occult pulmonary infections, occult heart failure, occult aspiration. And then there's actually such a thing as psychogenic cough, where people, you know, as part of when they get anxious, they cough or during <laughs> or or during various sort of activities cough. So it can be it can be tough to figure out. 
Um, and then my fifth key point is is kind of look around online uh, for algorithms. There are a lot of great algorithms uh, out there for cough because it's a you know it's a fairly complicated differential. Pretty much all algorithms start with okay the big three. Um, think about those. Think of which one of those is the most likely and treat it. If not, think of other things that are sort of easy to treat or maybe just wait out. So ACE inhibitors, does the person smoke? Has the person had a recent infection? Um, If not, then really get into the history, physical exam to see if that suggests something. And at that point, pretty much everybody needs a chest X-ray. And finally, actually consider ENT evaluation if all else fails. A good assessment of the upper airway is is really helpful. It can demonstrate findings suggestive of postnasal drip, of GERD, and certainly of tumors of the upper airway. That's great. I have to say this won't surprise you, but the only thing that I would vary my own practice from this is you know, you know, usually on that first visit when they've had a cough for a long period of time, unless I'm pretty clear that I know what's going on, they're going to get a chest x-ray at that first visit. Because, you know, the lung exam can hide a lot. You can, have, let me say it this way, you can have a lot of disease in your lungs and a pretty unimpressive lung exam. And um, I, you know, I end on one end of the spectrum of carefulness, but you wouldn't do that? I got to say, I, I think most people who come in with, and I, and I bet that actually outside of the studio here, we probably practice exactly the same. <laughs> um, I just think that the majority of people who see you for a chronic cough um, on that first visit, you have a pretty good idea of what's going on and you're going to treat that and probably withhold the x-ray with the idea that this is a person who, if they come back once and they're no better, you're going to x-ray them. And maybe you're going to send yourself a note or sell them like, listen, if you're not better in two weeks, I want to hear from you. Right. I guess maybe if they're a smoker, it might push me regardless. True. True. Okay. So back to the case. You're going to give me, first of all, any medications and exposures? What do you got? No medications, no exposures, took no over-the-counter stuff. There was nothing really that could help on the history besides what I've actually told you. Um, and so what the, key, what the key finding is on this guy's exam, turns out head and neck exam, completely normal, talking about sort of nose, oropharynx, lungs sounded clear. On examining this guy's ears, it turned out that as, I guess, a complication from his old ear surgery, he had an incredibly narrow external canal on one side, with um, cerumen impaction and a small ulcer there, okay? Um, When the doctors examined him, as soon as they got to the anterior part of the external canal, um, you know, with a a cotton swab, he starts coughing. Oh, give me a break. They pull out the, um, the cerumen impaction, and the guy says, for the first time in seven years, for like a month, he's cough free, okay? He comes back in with recurrent cough, okay, has recurrent cerumen impaction and and skin abnormalities in that anterior canal. Um, And after going through this cycle two times, they actually operate on this area, open up his canal, graft this area of of sort of chronically inflamed skin in the the front of the um, external canal, and he's better. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. I have to admit, I would never. So let me, were they thinking this was a problem or they're just like, okay, as an aside, we notice his ear, we're going to take care of his ear and it's a happenstance. I got to admit that, that even in the case report, it sounds like these doctors 
thought it was dumb luck. You know? Yeah, I mean, um, is that even reported? Well, it is now. And there actually are case reports. This was first described in actually the early 19th century. And if you think back to your neuroanatomy, right? So the glossopharyngeal nerve, the vagus nerve, actually all innervate the canal. And so if you're troubling those nerves, those are nerves which also are involved in the cough reflex. Okay, well... <laughs> I have to say, I'll be next. I'll have to add that to my differential diagnosis. I, I'll probably never see it again. Right, but how much better is that than just giving you a case of postnasal drip? Totally, totally. Okay, so with that fantastic case, let's go. We should do more like weird cases. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and random pearls of knowledge. Adam, what do you got for fingerprints? You know, I got nothing. How about you? Well, the only one I have is that a large smoking history of over 70 pack years has a positive likelihood ratio of eight for COPD. So when you're thinking about COPD and cough, the two numbers that obviously the more you smoke, the higher the likelihood is. If someone smoked under 20 years and they're in the U.S. or in a country where our heating is not with indoor biofuels, then the likelihood of COPD would be very low. Yeah. But that's all I got. I'm actually surprised that the likelihood ratio for COPD is only eight right. with a 70-pack year history. Right. I mean, you're a chimney at that point. Right. Okay. So misconceptions? Um, I'm going to say I'm going to go back to my big three, asthma, postnasal drip, GERD. I think the common misconception is that those are easy to treat. They are, but occasionally they're really difficult to treat. And you, I don't know, I feel like me as a primary care doctor, you know, family practice people, pediatricians, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about occasionally needing to refer asthma, postnasal drip, GERD to a subspecialist, because sometimes those are really hard to treat. Sometimes it's looking for the things that are exacerbating that condition, um, thinking about, you know, medications we don't wish we don't use in primary care a lot. So if you have the cause of cough, but even with that, you're not getting it better, you know, don't hesitate to refer. Okay, that's good to know. Um, my misconception is we, of course, we associate smoking with lung cancer, but about 10% of lung cancers actually occur in non-smokers. So I'm absolutely more worried about smokers with cough, both for laryngeal carcinoma and for uh, lung cancer, but you can't just blow it off because someone's a non-smoker. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Pet peeves. What do you got? <laughs> this is classic. Too many chest x-rays. Um, so that's on the one side of things. And I think we talked about that. It's that like, listen, if you know what it is, you don't need a chest x-ray. Just make sure you follow up with the person to make sure they got better. On the other hand, though, I got to say, it's holding out on the chest x-ray if it's going to reassure someone, right? So if someone comes in, you examine them, you're like, this person has postnasal drip. You know, their nose is inflamed. They've got co cobblestone and you know that a month of Flonase is going to fix them, but they're freaked out and they're sure they have lung cancer because, I don't know, their grandfather just died of lung cancer. Just get the damn chest x-ray and make the person feel better. For sure. You know, I sometimes have nightmares that you're going to start reviewing all my charts. I'm going to get in trouble for all the tests I order, but I'll, I'll hope that's not true. <laughs> all right. Do you have any pet peeves? Uh no, not today. I'll, I'll work on some for next week. Interesting. Must be chill today for some reason. I am. Um, I guess it was the whiskey at lunchtime. <laughs> um, clinical pearls, what do you got? Yeah. The the um, martini at the doctor's lounge. Oh, right. right. That's it. That's it. <laughs> like we have a doctor's lounge. Go ahead. Okay. Clinical pearls. 
So I think you mentioned this uh, as methicholine challenge, really helpful for diagnosing cough variant asthma, because you can have people who have cough variant asthma who actually have really normal spirometry. uh, And it's not until doing a methicholine challenge that you pick up on the fact that these people have really sensitive kind of twitchy airways that are causing their cough. Yeah, that's a great point. And you really have to go out of your way to order it in the system. So It's it's not by default. All right, so mine you've actually already mentioned, which is we can look for clues for diagnosing PND, uh, post-nasal drip on the posterior pharynx and cobblestoning, not to mention just secretions dripping down. So, um, And I have seen at least one patient who presented in primary care where there's a cough and you actually saw a mass at the back of their throat. Wow. So that's kind of scary when that happens, but it does happen. Yeah. And for, I think for people who are early in their training, you know, medical students, um, you know, APN students, whatever, you know, get good at this. So if you're working with someone and the person says, oh, you know, I see cobblestoning, really like stop them, you know, get a good exam, pull out the tongue blade if you need to. So you can really see what that looks like. Because someone with bad cobblestoning, it really does look like kind of red raw cobblestones on the back of their on the back of their throat. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think, uh, do you have another pearl for us? I do. And I got to say, I'm surprised I beat you to this one. Go ahead. Um it's heart failure. Um, So I think this has come up in some other podcasts that we've done, but heart failure really occasionally presents as wheezing, occasionally presents as cough. And if you've got someone, certainly someone who's got um, risk factors for cardiovascular disease or maybe cardiovascular disease itself, but they're not presenting with kind of classic, you know, PND or thopnea, dyspnea on exertion, but they tell you, you know, boy, I'm up a lot at night coughing. Um, You know, think about heart failure as a cause of that. I would have to say that's missed a lot. I've seen a lot of patients who have heart disease who come in with wheezing, and I'll have students and residents say to me that this 60 or 70-year-old guy has new onset asthma, who I already know is heart failure. I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's probably the heart failure. Or it may just be a clue that like, you know, this person has heart failure. You're treating their heart failure, right? They're on GDMT, whatever. But their symptom of their heart failure getting a little bit out of control is, you know, this cough. And you're a whole lot better recognizing it then than recognizing it when they're in the emergency room with a BNP of 4,000. For sure. For sure. Uh, you got one more? My la- Yeah, this won't really surprise you. Actually, I'm going to do two in one. Okay. So I would say, you know, a careful lung exam is really important. Occasionally you find things that are really abnormal and you have to follow up on it. I've seen patients where it's just decreased breath sounds in one base, but that's not normal. And if you get a chest x-ray and you see a small effusion, that's not normal. And you get on the path towards figuring out what's wrong with the patient. I always say that when you hear reported to you that the person has decreased breath sounds, it either means that they have a pleural effusion, but more likely it means that the person who's reporting to you doesn't know how to listen to the lungs. <laughs> well, I'm hoping I'm in the former, not the latter. Um, and the other one I mentioned already, but I'm just going to emphasize it again. I have seen a few people with ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, where the diagnosis was missed. They often have long-standing asthma, and they get one pneumonia, and then in the next year, they get another pneumonia. And it's not really pneumonia. It's mucus plugging um, from the ABPA that causes atelectasis of that downstream lobe that looks radiographically like an opacity, and they're called pneumonia. So when you start seeing that, you should definitely think about um, ABPA. Terrific. And those fleeting infiltrates, you know, there, there's really a differential to that too, right? I mean, we see that with drug use, especially inhaled drug use, right. um, where you'll see people afterwards. And a lot of the other interstitial pneumonias, like allergic pneumonidities, 
which really ABPA is, right, right uh, can present in a very similar right. way. Um, ABPA is a tough disease. You know, you see a lot of people who struggle with that for years, um, and you're seem to be between a rock and a hard place with either your symptoms of your ABPA or your symptoms of the immunosuppression and the right, exactly, and so right. So. Lost steroids. Yeah. Well, we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. Another pitch that you can now chat with us on Twitter at S2D Podcast. And of course, the music for this, the S2D Podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.